This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas and compare and contrast it to older films, older genres, older filmmakers, and hopefully you will uh, hear about a a cinema that you don't know very much about, and uh, it gives us a chance to dig back into the history of movies. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and elsewhere. And you can find me online on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. In this episode, we took a turn from the cinema back home to turn on the Criterion channel, the new streaming service that is available in Canada. And we talk about Criterion Films. It's a great label. And, and specifically, the cinema of... Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, the great British filmmakers who have a lot of their stuff available on Criterion Now. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Well, if you're a fan of the British films of uh, director Michael Powell and screenwriter Emmerich Pressburger, known collectively as The Archers, which is the production team that they formed partway through their partnership and through the end of it, uh, towards the end of the 1950s, from the, uh, the from the mid 40s or from the from the Second World War years, um, then you're probably familiar with the Criterion Collection. Or if you're just a fan of, of classic films, foreign films, uh, off the beaten path kind of films, forgotten gems, you you probably have an inkling of what this company has been doing uh, over the past uh, few decades. Uh, Even if you're a fan of Armageddon, yes, or The Rock, <laughs> <laughs> both of which, for some reason, I've never been able to understand, are on Criterion. And more recently, The Breakfast Club. I guess, which is I think has joined the collection, but it's it uh, it began as an offshoot of a company called Janus Films or Janus Films, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, and, which was a distributor of uh, of foreign films, uh, new films, or they would pick up the the North American copyright on classics by uh, Akira Kurosawa or uh, Ingmar Bergman, like you know the, the really the building blocks of uh, of modern cinema. They uh, had their finger on the pulse of what was important, uh, at least in their eyes and in the eyes of most cinephiles, and uh, and were uh, charged with the task of uh, preserving these films, making them available to uh, rep house cinemas that wanted to screen them, and uh, you know and and restoring the films and keeping them in uh, archival presentable shape. Uh, and then of course once 
home uh, theater was upon us, they saw uh, an opportunity to get these even further out into the world, you know, t- to those people who maybe did not have the benefit of a, a nearby rep cinema or, uh, or you know, college film club or, or what have you. So they started in the days of Laserdisc. Uh, we're looking uh, at the 80s. I'm trying to remember exactly when they started, but uh, the, the basically the VHS was beneath them. Uh, <laughs> I think there were actually a few things that they put on VHS due to uh, demand. But for the most part, uh, laser discs uh, where they could add things like director's commentary and extras like uh, trailers and, and um, you know, featurettes and storyboards and all that thing. They basically invented the concept of special features, which, of course, are a key selling point in home theater today on 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 Blu-ray and DVD, and even on streaming services, which often offer up these uh, extra features uh, in in uh, in conjunction with the films that they're showing. So uh, these guys basically came up with all of these concepts and uh, dragged the rest of the home the- you know theater world, uh, the the home video world, with them into uh, presenting the best possible transfers and and going the extra mile to give the person purchasing a movie, you know, spending money to have a copy of a film in their own home to actually give them some you know, added value, as it were. And uh, I think they started out with, uh, they put out a version of Citizen Kane on Laserdisc. Uh, uh, they licensed things like uh, Wizard of Oz at one point. Uh, King Kong was a big early one for them. Uh, you know, so they were obviously going with the big blockbusters and then getting into things like Seven Samurai and Yojimbo and a lot of those classic titles. And of course, when DVD came along, they kind of jumped in with both feet and uh, raised the bar for that format. And then eventually Blu-ray. I, I think they may have been a, I think they may have waited a bit on Blu-ray, waiting to see what when the dust would settle. Because as you might remember, there was another format called HD. Was it HD DVD or yeah, something? Yeah, that's right. It was the beta VHS war, which thankfully died out very quickly. And uh, and so then they, you know, they're like, okay, Blu-ray is the way to go. Um, you know, and presenting, but you know, not just classic films, not just films from decades ago, but also kind of, you know, keeping an eye out for sort of modern classics, as if you will. So things like Gamora, for example, the, the Italian uh, crime picture of a few years ago, you know, they, they were the ones who brought it to the world almost immediately as, as soon as it became available for that market. Or um, the, even uh, Benjamin Button, I think, uh, they, they were the ones that put it out. And in fact, uh, that and I think maybe a couple of the um, Wes Anderson films, they kind of got the DVD Blu-ray rights to those, and they became the first Criterion releases that you might find in, say, a Walmart home home video department. You know, they, that's where they really started to penetrate into the uh, the minds of the the mass market, if you will. So, you know, they just they set the bar so high that a lot of filmmakers probably got it into their contracts that their their films would have a Criterion edition because that seemed to be the the bar of excellence. That that if, you know, if your film was worthy of being uh, in that collection, then it must uh, it must be a classic, which is which is the only way I can explain why there are two Michael Bay films <laughs> in the Criterion Collection, um, because you know you know even even he must be enough of a film nerd that he like he feels that uh, if his films aren't considered Criterion worthy, then what are they? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I wonder about that. I mean, but, I've never quite understood and had it explained to me, but yeah, you're, the way you describe it is probably right. Well, and, and I guess from a marketing perspective, they probably saw, well, these will sell big yeah. and uh, we can, you know, if we have a couple of big sellers like that in our pocket, then we can, you know, do a restoration of Harold and Maude or, or, or Tiny Furniture by Lena Dunham or whatever, like the, the that uh, it, uh, I guess the end justifies the means if, if it, if having a, 
a copy of uh, Armageddon and, and The Rock in your collection means that it'll provide income to do films that probably won't make any money. And then, yeah, okay, yeah, I can live make, with it. I don't total have, sense. Nobody has to buy it if they don't want it, um, unless, unless you're one of those obsessives. And I know a couple who, who, <laughs> who have to have every... They just want to have every Criterion edition that comes down the pipe, which is a pretty daunting task these days because they seem to release a lot of stuff, Fast and Furious, and and that kind of mentality scares me a little. You yeah, know, it's and, like and ball they, card collecting or something. They do have hundreds of titles now, and they're going roughly, I would say, in the $40 range for a new title, uh, either DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, so actually, I think the DVDs in are Canada. somewhere... Yeah, in Canada. <laughs> so somewhere in the $30 range for a DVD, but in 40 for Blu-ray. And yeah, that's, that's pretty steep for most people uh, if you're buying them regularly. But now... We have the Criterion channel where you can subscribe and get a lot of titles, not all, but a lot of the Criterion titles uh, available to stream. And uh, we were just checking in on it this week, and I was really impressed with the stuff they have there. And, and it's it's funny because not only do they have their own library available, but they have other titles that they might not have on Blu-ray or DVD. We were we were uh, charmed to see um, they well they had they have these like little. Uh, so, sort of themes, thematic collections, like, for instance, the killer couples with Eating Raoul, Sightseers, and Honeymoon Killers, except, unfortunately, Sightseers isn't available to be seen in Canada. But clearly, in the United States, you could watch those three films. Um, they have four Kelly Reichardt films, uh, three Carol Reed films. They have this wonderful tribute to the Belcourt Theater in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, an art house cinema I, I don't know much about, but uh, I, was, I was pleased to check it out and learn a few things. And I certainly, next time I'm going to be in Nashville, I might go and see something there. Uh, yeah, David Simon talking about Paths of Glory, Guillermo del Toro talking about Blood Simple. I mean, this is the stuff for real cinema fans uh, who who want to feel engaged by the culture. There's plenty here to enjoy. Yeah, there's a whole series of uh, comic, comedian, actor, uh, Bill Hader discussing some of his favorite films in these kind of little, you know, two or three minute bursts. And then you can actually watch the film on the channel. And uh, and yeah, and there's there are lots of titles that either they have the rights to, but haven't seen fit to figure out a way to put them out on the, the market yet. Uh, this, this gives them an opportunity to maybe gauge how much demand there is for a film. You know, if they put up, you know, a lesser known Kelly Reichardt film and if a lot of people actually stream it, then they can go, well, maybe we should put out a Kelly Reichardt box set or something. Like, I, I'm really curious to see, you know, how the two-way street of having this uh, channel available goes. But uh, but in the meantime, it's great for them to um, to be able to make things available that may not make sense in a physical format, but to put them on a streaming channel obviously doesn't take uh, as much uh, effort or, or cost. And uh, it gets, uh, allows you to get into some nooks and crannies of cinema that you might not otherwise get to see. And uh, that's very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of nooks and crannies in cinema, <laughs> I've been looking for an excuse to dip into the work of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, these grand uh, film sort of icons of British cinema for a long time. Many of their titles are available on Criterion. Not all of them. They, they were prolific. They made a lot of feature films, only a few of which I'd seen before this week. But thankfully, we dipped in and watched a number of them starting, and I'm going through them chronologically here, but the, the titles that, that we watched this week, The 49th Parallel, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, the, the Canterbury Tale, uh, Black Narcissus, and The Red Shoes. So about 10 years worth of feature films from the late 30s to the late 40s. And they all ha come with some wonderful stuff. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching all these films. Uh, some I liked more than others. Some I had 
felt aged better than others, but uh, the 49th parallel, starting there in 1941, um, is is really a work of sort of, I mean, it's a work of propaganda, but it's a bit, it's subtle about it, at least at the beginning. I wasn't 100% sure this was any different than any other kind of war picture until we got about halfway in and I started to realize that our protagonists, who are a group of, <laughs> of Nazi soldiers, uh, I should say sailors, uh, who have had to uh, get away from their U-boat, which is destroyed somewhere near the uh, uh, the Hudson's Bay. They, yeah, the mouth of Hudson's Bay. Yeah, they've been they bombed. raiding, raiding the the Canadian shoreline, and so they're left stranded, and they have to find a way to get to the United States, which which has not joined the war effort yet, and therefore uh, they feel they can go there and be safe. Whereas, of course, Canada is already involved, um, and uh, and then they as they travel through Canada, they meet all these Canadians, various new Canadians, Canadians different backgrounds and cultures, and uh, it's it's kind of get schooled on Canadian culture circa 1941 in a way that is is a little bit hokey but also kind of delightful and then you start to realize wait a second this film's whole point is that uh, Canada is too strong and uh, too solidified to the the solidarity of the people there is no way that they are going to be bent to under the kneel the boot heel of the Nazi and uh, yeah that was really something to see especially since they shot a lot of it on location so they did a lot of traveling to shoot this film uh, some of it of course is is in studio and that's that that kind of you know r- rubs raw against the stuff that's on location but boy uh, it's it's something to see uh, the the sense of pride here for British filmmakers uh, setting their film in Canada. It's, it's, yeah, it's really something, especially when you consider 1941, the war was, was in full throw yeah. at this, at this point. Well, uh, uh, this film, obviously it came out before Pearl Harbor, uh, or at least was in production before Pearl Harbor. I don't know when it, it did get released in the States as the invaders. They changed the title just because I guess they figured people's weren't that good at geography in the U.S. and 49th Parallel. What does that mean? So they changed it to The Invaders, um, no relation to the Marvel Comics universe and uh, Cinematic Universe. And uh, so, you know, basically it was produced, I think uh, J. Arthur Rank, I think, was a producer of this film, uh, which was also tied into the Odeon Theater chain, which, of course, had a chain of cinemas across Canada, um, including, and basically the Odeon Cinemas in Halifax eventually became Empire Cinemas, which was owned by the Sobeys, you know, grocery store chain or whatever, uh, and became Empire Cinemas and then was later sold to Cineplex. So there's this long chain of, uh, of ownership. Of course, uh, you know, the last actual Odeon Cinema is now uh, about to be turned into a rock climbing facility on Quinpool Road. The Oxford Cinema was originally an Odeon Cinema. And, it, and so, of course, as Odeon Cinemas, they would show a lot of Hollywood films, of course, this being, you know, the, being in the movie business, but they would also show a lot of British uh, stuff, uh, certainly up into the 70s, maybe not so much after the 80s. I think because the British film industry was kind of on the wane. I don't know when J. Arthur Rank went out of business um, as a studio, but, um, you know, I remember they would show the carry-on comedies and, and uh, you know, from what I've understood, like the musical comedies of George Formby were really popular across Canada because they would be shown through the Odeon chain. So, so this was obviously a film that was meant uh, to be shown in North America as well as you know in other British, um, you know, Commonwealth countries wherever Odeon had cinemas, uh, and uh, and and in the states as well. And uh, it, it is an interesting look at the home front uh, kind of spirit and the thought that uh, nowhere is safe from the Nazi menace. Uh, and, uh, and yet, uh, 
it's pure propaganda, but at the same time, it is not hitting you over the head with its message. And, and of course, uh, we've watched other films, uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, which we'll get to in a bit, also is, you know, there's a propagandic element to it, but it's not the main reason for the for the movie to exist. And that's why they survive all these years later, because they don't feel dated in that aspect of it. It's They're, they're not, you know, something that Joseph Garbles would have approved of, you know, because it's it kind of... It, it kind of coats the messages in very many layers of other aspects of storytelling. And, uh, and that's part of the charm. There's still like a lot of humor. The characters are intelligent. They're not just cardboard characters designed to deliver a message that the story comes first and the message, uh, you know, probably third or fourth uh, down the line of, of what they wanted to get across. And that's what makes them so effective. But 40, 49th Parallel, certainly fun to watch as a Canadian. Uh, of course, it, you know, it opens... Uh, on the East Coast, and there, there are you know scenes set in Halifax, even though they were filmed on a I think a Montreal soundstage. Um, uh, the bombing of the submarine was actually filmed in Cornerbrook, uh, just because it was going to be too difficult to do it up where it actually takes place uh, in the, the northern mouth of Hudson's Bay. So they actually filmed it in Cornerbrook, um, and which I guess you know it's got the harbor has a narrow mouth that kind of resembles you know, the place it was standing in for, uh, because, uh, when they were, I, I think I told you this story, but how, when they were filming, they, they forgot that Newfoundland was actually not a Canadian province. It was part of, it was a British, uh, the Commonwealth, I, I don't want to say colony, but it wasn't, it wasn't a province. It was its own thing within the Commonwealth and that they were going to get charged taxes and excise, uh, duties on this, uh, fake submarine that they were going to blow up. And they, it, they had to go through back channels to persuade them that uh, because it's being for the war effort and a film that they're making to, you know, boost morale and so on, that uh, they shouldn't have to pay taxes. And I think they got around it eventually. And, you know, and the fact that it's not for commerce, it's we're actually going to blow this up for a movie for the war effort. So please don't, you know, take us over budget because we're a new filming in Newfoundland. So somehow they got around it, I think. I think Powell is probably fairly persuasive. But that's a there's all this kind of weird back you know, backstory stuff about the film where they're obviously out of their element filming, filming in on the other side of the Atlantic and, and, uh, dealing with, uh, conditions that maybe they didn't have to deal with, uh, in, uh, in the UK, but the, but the film is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, people like Lawrence Olivier and, uh, Leslie Howard and Raymond Massey all signed on and for, for less than their normal, uh, salaries. Um, and you got to mention, the film. mention Lawrence Olivier playing a Quebec guy and, and, struggling as I would say, but you know, game to try and, and uh, be provide an accurate Quebec accent. But really, I mean, it's way, way over the top. It's way over the top, but he, it's clear that he studied it a little bit. Like he yeah. must've tried to bone up on what a French Canadian accent sounds like, but I guess in the name of character, he decided to make it kind of outsized and stuff, but he is actually doing a French, he's not doing a, a, a Parisian or, or, or front, you know, French accent from France. He's actually trying to approximate a French Canadian trapper's accent. And, uh, you know, cause when I was, the first time I saw it, I saw this, uh, I was lucky enough to see it in the theater, actually 49th parallel saw it on the big screen and, uh, and people of course were laughing at him, but you know, the more I've read about it, the more, you know, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's, he's actually trying to be more authentic than you realize but because it's Lawrence Olivier and he's being, you know, so big, as a, as an actor, uh, he kind of puts it over the top a little bit. It's certainly a memorable performance. It, it may not be one of the finest uh, 
that Sir Larry ever uh, put on screen, but it is memorable in its brief uh, few moments on screen, and you certainly don't forget it. And I guess that was that was the main thing. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that they were going for accuracy so much as a, you know a larger than life kind of character, especially that at that early stage of the film. For sure, and there's a lot of other name actors: uh, Anton Walbrook, Eric Portman, who play some of the Germans, Canadian Raymond Massey playing a Canadian. I guess for the only time in yes, his career, the only time Canadian actor Raymond Massey played a Canadian. Um, and Leslie <laughs> Howard also star. But these are characters who show up during the run of the film, and sometimes only very briefly. Oh, and a very young Glynis Johns as a Hutterite girl in Manitoba. Um, but all of this seemed to work because, according to the IMDb, this was the biggest grossing movie in the UK in 1941 and the biggest grossing British film to date in the United States when it was released, as, the, as you said, as The Invaders. So, I mean, that's saying something. This, this worked. Yeah. This was the appetite people had for films in, during the war. And it won an Oscar for uh, either script or story or whatever the category was at that time. So it actually was, was their first. And I don't know how many Oscars that Powell and Pressburger won. I can't imagine there were many, but this was the first one and uh so so not a not a bad uh a bad way to go with this film uh i mean the, there are things in the film that don't necessarily work like the fact that they're walking across the prairies to get to vancouver um you know eventually they do steal a car and it's like well that what took you so long but it's uh, uh and then then of course they eventually have to change tactics and then they wind up at you know so they're on the, they're in the rockies they're on their way to vancouver and the next thing you know they're on a train to niagara falls um, and it's just, and, and sometimes people forget that, you know, cause I actually got into this conversation when I said they're on their way to Vancouver and like, but they, I thought they were going to Van, Niagara Falls. Like, yeah. But the original plan was to get to Vancouver and get on a Japanese steamer because, uh, we weren't at war with Japan yet, but it was still, Japan was an Axis power, but until they attacked Pearl Harbor, the war wasn't on. In fact, Canada declared war on Japan a day before the U S did. <laughs> So that's one of our claims of it. For a full day, we were alone facing the might of the Japanese Empire. Um, uh, but of course, this is before that happened, or at least when it was filmed. So, um, and then there's like a sudden jump. All of a sudden, the next thing you know, they're halfway back across the country. So, um, the uh, there are some inconsistencies in this story, but it is a great to see our country from a hundred and or eighty years ago, seen through uh, kind of. British eyes and see how we were viewed by, you know, a filmmaker or filmmakers from across the pond. And, uh, you know, at some point they do wind up in Winnipeg. So it's not that Canada is all prairies and mountains. At some point there is shots of a city. So, you know, they don't view us as completely uh, rural and, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, puritanical or whatever. But but it takes a while to get there. And it, it is interesting to see this view of of our country, which is a little dated in some ways, but but that's history for you. So if you get a chance to see it, like I say, it is on the Criterion Channel, um, and it is available on uh, on. Uh, I don't think it's on Blu-ray. I think there is a DVD of it though. So uh, I definitely recommend checking it out. <laughs> Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, uh, the film podcast. We're talking about the cinema of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger and uh, Criterion Collection. And uh, my favorite of the films we watched from these two talented filmmakers is the next one we're going to talk about, which is The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from 1943. The title, I gather, comes from a comic book strip. Uh, or a comic strip, but I it, it it seems a strange one to me because of course I have no sort of cultural memory of this of the source material. But the film itself 
kind of starts like Catch-22. It's a wartime romp in 1943. War games lead to a Turkish bath in London where a very pompous General Clive Wynn Candy played by Roger Livesay, Livesay, is luxuriating, and he gets into a fight with a young lieutenant, which leads to a flashback, and the general's life, this is the story of the movie, goes back 40 years ago, when Candy was a young military man, sort of a dandy in in um, the Boer War, and they're talking about South Africa, and uh, he goes, takes himself on a mission to Berlin to quash some nasty propaganda, uh, and then he hooks up with, or he, I should say he meets, hooks up is probably not the right term for <laughs> 1902, no. um, Deborah Carr, uh, who plays a character named Edith Hunter, and eventually Candy gets in trouble offending a group of German officers, and he has to have a duel, and the German soldier with whom he duels, played by Anton Walbrook, becomes his best friend through war and peacetime, and it's sort of about there, even though Deborah Carr plays three different characters through the film, three different people, uh, she, I mean, her look never Never really changes, <laughs> but um, she plays three different women. Uh, the, it's the story of the relationship, the friendship between these two soldiers, a German soldier and uh, a British soldier, and how they manage to sort of learn about they, their their perspectives on the world changes over the 40 years between 1902 and 1942 or 43. And uh, it's fascinating, the view, the sort of perspective that the filmmakers are giving to us about how the world changed in that period, in that first half of the 20th century, through the eyes of these soldiers and and through, and especially the British soldier Candy, who has this very sort of like uh, proper, you know, war is fought cleanly with certain rules and certain honor, especially through World War One, he's managed to sustain that. He believes that the Brits, the Allies won uh, World War One because of that cleanliness in their battle tactics. But by the time World War II starts, his German friend is basically telling him, look, if you behave that way when you fight Nazis, you will lose. And it's so important that you fight them with their own tactics. And uh, and it's a very, in some ways, it's very disillusioning. And it's very much like, oh, the world has changed and England must change with it. And, and uh, I, I found that despite the fact this is largely a comedy, it has some real darkness to it. And it, but is so satisfying in the way that the story is told. And I am so glad we got a chance to watch it. And it is truly epic. It is two hours and 43 minutes long. It is not, and, and yet, uh, it wasn't until maybe around the two-hour mark that I find found myself kind of drifting a little bit. Um, uh, I mean, this I've, this is probably the third time I've seen this film, uh, watching it for uh, this uh, episode. But uh, you know, I, I see new stuff in it all the time. I pick up on new details and and new elements of the film. Uh, and it's it's a you know some remarkably rich performances from from Livesine Walbrick and of course Deborah Kerr, uh, Carr and. Um, it's uh, it's just a phenomenal film on so many levels, and and the most recent restoration of it on on Blu-ray or um, I actually watched it on the Criterion Channel, and the, you know just streaming it through to my TV set, uh, it's the same transfer as the Blu-ray in the same definition, and it is stunning. It is like almost three-dimensional in its clarity, uh, and and which is something that the Criterion um, uh, company always prides itself on is, is the quality of its transfers and, and the presentations of the film, showing them complete and, and you know, as close to, if not better than how they looked in theaters originally and so on. And, and it all, and, uh, you know, shot in this brilliant Technicolor that's not like the Hollywood candy-colored uh, Technicolor, but this kind of earthy, 
rich toned, multi-hued technicolor that is, is really easy on the eyes and it just sucks you into this world. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, an amazing look at history, uh, and uh, and the history of the film itself is also equally uh, fascinating. I mean, this was made while the country was at war. Churchill apparently hated it, and because oh, he and, thought it was about him, he thought it was about him. He thought it was a parody of him because C- Colonel Blimp, as you mentioned, it was a cartoon character. It was a single panel kind of political cartoon that ran in in uh, either a London Weekly or a regular newspaper but and he was it was always showed Colonel Blimp this character is kind of rotund balding older military gent with the mustache usually uh, in the steam bath which is why when we first meet him he's in the steam bath in London just so people would recognize him from the comic strip but but uh but a fairly one-dimensional kind of thing he's, he's kind of you know, kind of representing the old guard and that old kind of stuffier uh, generation. And that's kind of what the cartoon was about. Uh, and like I say, it was just a single panel uh, thing in, on a page of uh, comic strips uh, in, in, I forget which, which London publication. But, uh, but, but the public was familiar enough with him, I think, to be able to kind of take that image to the theater and then see this whole entirely different story about who this man was and how he got there and, and how he does learn to change with the times and, and, and so on. But, and also, as you say, that message that, that Walbrook deliver, delivers as, as an expat German who wants to see the Nazis defeated, um, you know, and that, that you can't just rely on honor and, and uh, you know, expecting nobility from the other side in this particular war. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it was a tough pill to swallow, and it's not necessarily something that... You know, obviously, it's a very it, it's very much real politic, and that's how the war was being fought. But maybe it's not how the British public wanted to think of themselves as fighting in this war, and maybe that's one of the other reasons why certain um, certain powers in the Home Office didn't want this film. A didn't want it made in the first place, and then B didn't want it to be seen at large. But it ended up being, you know seeing by by a certainly a large number of the public and uh and then getting cut down by about 90 having 90 minutes of it removed and released in the states uh you know having the the kind of more complicated structure of it kind of reduced uh for its um overseas release and so on and 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 generally a film that uh, suffered greatly over the years uh until its reputation was restored when it was finally put back together and and uh, brought back to its original glory um there's a lot to say about this film, and we're kind of running out of time. But uh, it, uh, you know, the the if you get the Blu-ray, I mean, obviously I watched it on the Criterion Channel. I also do have the Blu-ray, and the extras on it are fantastic. Martin Scorsese is is in particular a big fan of this this film, and he talks about the restoration and and uh, the meaning of the film, why it's still relevant today. Um, it's interesting to note that the idea for the film came from David Lean, uh, of course, no, no shirker himself in the filmmaking department, but he began as an editor and he was working with Michael Powell. In fact, I think he was an editor on 49th Parallel and, uh, and 49th Parallel, I think, had the same cinematographer, uh, Freddie Young, who would work on Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai and so on. Um, and uh, so David Lean, uh, they were, there was a segment in an earlier film, one of our aircraft is missing, and, and they had to take this whole segment out about, I guess, the old guard of uh, the British military or what have you. And then Lean suggested this could be a whole film in and of itself to Powell and Pressburger. 
And they kind of, that kind of stuck with them. And then they expanded it into this two hour and 43 minute epic. Mm. Um, and uh, one of our aircraft is missing is available now on Prime, as a matter of fact. Yes, one, not, one not on Criterion, but on yeah. another, but, uh, but another streaming service. Worth, <laughs> worth checking out. Um, but weirdly, the opening of Colonel Blimp with these racing motorcycles, uh, you know, dashing down uh, these British country lanes to deliver the news about this, this war game that's underway, um, is almost a perfect match to the scenes of Lawrence of Arabia on his motorbike uh, at the very start of that epic film. So I kind of wonder if that was a tip of the hat to Powell and Pressburger um, and this film in particular, which I don't think Lean actually worked on this film, but because uh, uh, you know, event he very quickly becomes a director in his own right with with things like Great Expectations and so on. But uh, but I, I like the connection between the mm. two films from one epic to another. Yeah, and we're really talking about the these films really encapsulate the British identity. I mean, I understand why, as you mentioned, the Home Office being a little threatened by Colonel Blimp because of the way that, you know, it, it, this, we're talking about trying to keep morale up and, and not to sacrifice what makes England, England. You know, I can just hear the old men huffing and puffing as they, they, they suck on their uh, cigars talking about this. But uh, speaking of, of British identity, the Canterbury Tale, which I watched this morning, um, <laughs> from 1944, is it couldn't be more English, but it is really something to see. This is a film where Powell and Pressburger uh, are constantly messing with light in a way that I don't know that I've seen them do quite in other films. It's black and white. In the opening, we get the old English pilgrims going to Canterbury. Then we flash forward to the present day with tanks and trains on the roads and rails of England. And we alight one night in Chillingburn, which is apparently a fictional town in Kent. American soldier, Sergeant Bob Johnson, played by John Sweet, who was in fact a soldier, gets off the train by mistake. He meets British Sergeant Peter Gibbs, played by Dennis Price, and a land girl, Alison Smith, played by Sheila Sims. Now, land girls, I guess, were... Uh, a, a group of, of women who were put to work in the fields and agriculture where while the men were away at war. Uh, now, the first five minutes, while there's a spirited exchange between the characters at the train station, they're entirely in shadow, so we don't see their faces at all for the first five minutes. And as they walk from the station to the town hall in town, someone pours glue into Allison's hair, and after a short chase, the glue man gets away, but that starts the mystery. Who is the glue man? What is going on in this town? They meet a local farmer, Thomas Culpepper, again, played by Eric Portman, another regular from uh, uh, Powell and Pressburger. Uh, he's also in the 49th Parallel, and they suspect him of perhaps being the glue man, and then a lot of detective work. The bulk of the movie, the detective work, trying to figure out who the glue man is. This is a film I really enjoyed. I loved all the characters. I loved all the comedy, the the, the light sort of imp- impressionistic take on British rural life. Um I didn't quite get the real the reasons behind when they finally figure out who the glue man is. His reasons for doing what he does didn't ring with me. I'm like, really? Like, is this <laughs> this you really? And they're very forgiving of him for the why he's doing what he does. But but when eventually they do get to Canterbury, there's a wonderful footage. Uh, from the streets of Can- Canterbury, you know, just suffering through the war and uh, destroyed buildings. And it just all of a sudden has this docudrama quality that is really great to see. So, yeah, this I really, though I had a couple of problems with the, some of the plotting, uh, I really enjoyed the film. Well, it, it, maybe this is a good time to mention that these films don't, I mean, and that's the beauty of these films. And that's why I wish more people would see them, especially uh hopeful filmmakers because they, they don't stick to formula. They, they, they don't follow the conventional rules of, of storytelling and, and 
you know, multi-act structure and that kind of thing. Like Powell and Pressburger were very much mavericks in their field, certainly in England. Uh, you know, as uh, where, where things a lot of if you although there were a lot of popular entertainments, they were not interested in making those. In fact, Powell started out making these films called quota quickies because the 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 British film industry. Uh, to stop the incursion of Hollywood product, had to produce a certain amount of British-made films to compete with the, the American films. So they had these things called quota quickies, which were man- they were budgeted at a pound per foot of film. Like that was how much you had to spend. Like if it was going to be this many feet or reels or what have you, then you could spend this much money on it, which is, you know, not how great art gets made. And that's but that's how Powell learned his trade by grinding out these little musical comedies and romantic dramas and these very, you know, films that he considers very insubstantial, but are still pretty interesting if you get a chance to see them. They're not as widely available as, you know, when he became the eminent uh, director of his age kind of thing. But but those early films are interesting. They're pretty slight, but they're, you know, they have interesting touches, which obviously, you know, were ways that he was stretching his legs. But um, but these these films, I find, they're sometimes the the unconventional nature of their stories sometimes works against them where some some story elements maybe don't get the kind of attention they would if you were kind of doing a by the numbers sort of filmmaking but i think that's part of their charm and part of um what makes them unique uh and uh and you know i only saw this for the first time fairly recently and i was completely drawn into this world it's a home front story there is a propaganda aspect to it but it's pretty light it's mostly i mean it, it's propaganda in the sense that it it's trying to instill this this feeling of of not necessarily patriotism in uh, the british public but this feeling of belonging to the the land that they live on and and the richness of their heritage kind of thing as as opposed uh-huh. to like you know you know get out there and fight sort of thing that but but that that you know that england is something worth fighting for and uh and and that it has this this past that is you know, rich and multi-layered, and and uh, and worth remembering going forward, and also you know worth preserving. Um, and so it's got that kind of British way of life aspect to it. And then you get to Canterbury, the great seat of uh, British faith, and 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 uh, you know the the ties to the crown and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't doesn't oversell that aspect of it either. But uh, it's interesting they couldn't film in the cathedral itself because the cathedral was completely sandbagged to prevent it from you know the, so that you know, things crumbling wouldn't completely get destroyed. And, you know, that in fact it wasn't suitable for filming because uh, it didn't look anything like they wanted it to appear on film. So they actually had to use mats and and um, hanging miniatures and that kind of thing. But um, it's, it's, it's such a delightful story as each person has their own reasons for going to Canterbury. One guy wants to play the mighty organ in the cathedral and, and uh, 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 Sheila Sim, you know, she's, she wants to... Uh, get back to something that's been kept in storage for her all these years and uh, sort of bring something from her past back to life. And uh, it's, it's just really marvelous. It's such a human story. It's, it's a lot more down to earth than life and death of Colonel Blimp um, in, 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 in its relatable way. And it's uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a remarkable film, but it's such an unusual story. And like you say, the mystery, it's got this whole mystery running through it. That isn't, the reason for the film to exist, but I, you know, I wonder if they, they put that in there just to give it some extra excitement or some extra engagement. It is a very odd part of the film. Uh, and, uh, it, it is a bit of a head scratcher, but it's so bizarre. The whole glue man thing that it, uh, you know, it's, it makes, it helps make it a, the film even that much more unforgettable, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, now we should just nod to another film that we didn't watch as part of our, uh, our trip back to 
uh, Powell and Pressburger and Criterion Films. But uh, it was showed shown at Cineplex not too long ago, and it's lovely when Cineplex chooses to to bring back uh, classic films and show them on the big screen. But that's a matter of life and death, also known as Stairway to Heaven from 1946, uh, and it stars David Niven as a pilot who thinks he should be dead, but he's alive. And some scenes take place in color in the in the living world and some scenes take place in black and white in the afterlife and it's it's certainly a film to see like it is a striking picture and uh yeah and i i uh, to be honest i don't remember all the details of the plot so well but i remember being super engaged by it in the cinema well it's uh yeah the, the whole clash between technicolor and black and white and they even refer to it like it's one of the angels comes down from heaven and wishes that they had technicolor up in heaven so basically heaven is in black and white earth is in technicolor and uh, and we have this very kind of foppish uh, French angel who's come down to um, talk to uh, Niven's airman and, and get him to come up and 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 go basically stand on trial for for his own life. And uh, you know he's like, "We're starred for Technicolor up there," and it's it's just such a it's one of the best in jokes of all time, really. And uh, but he's fallen in love with uh, this. Uh, radio operator played by Kim Hunter. So he's got a reason to want to stay alive. And, uh, you know, and then we get the famous figures up in heaven as they're kind of trying to decide if, if a mistake was made or if he really is meant to, to be left alive on earth and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful fantasy. A film blanc is the, the kind of the, the genre it belongs to this kind of much more recently invented, uh, uh, format uh, genre or type of story where films have this kind of heaven clash between heaven and earth. You know, there's uh, here comes Mr. Jordan and the horn blows at midnight. There's a lot of films that kind of fit in this uh, fit in this particular realm, and and they're all fairly wonderful. Where you know where where characters have to fight to uh, to uh, justify their own existence. Um, Defending Your Life by Albert Brooks would probably be the most recent uh, <laughs> sure. uh, incarnation of this, probably inspired by these uh, by these very films. Um, and uh, yeah, it is in the Criterion Collection. It, I think it's on the streaming channel. I think I saw it there. But yeah, that's we didn't watch it for the show, but we both have fond memories of it. And it's definitely a, a great romantic drama with a lot of comedy in it um, that's worth seeing. But uh, a romantic drama with very little comedy is <laughs> uh, The Red Shoes, which we watched. Um, and uh, I think this is Martin Scorsese's favorite film, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, in the supplements on the Blu-ray, I don't think that uh, any of these supplements show up on the Criterion channel, although other supplements for other films do appear. But uh, in this case, you get the films and that's it. But, uh, you know, that's the incentive, I guess, to go out and buy the deluxe editions. Uh, the Red Shoes, of course, the classic story of the opera. Oh, sorry, the ballet. I keep saying opera when I mean to say ballet. Sorry, folks, if I do it again, please bear with me. But um, a ballet based on the Hans Christian Andersen fable about a woman who is forced to dance until, um, you know, basically dance herself to death. With these, these shoes basically will make her the greatest dancer in the world. The only problem is, is she won't be able to stop dancing. And in one of those cruel Hans Christian Andersen twists of fate that we see, in, yeah. which, which Disney then completely removes from from the original story when they get around to making a, a cartoon out of it. But, um, you know, this is often held as, as the pinnacle of the, the relationship between uh, Powell and Pressburger, which uh, which ended not too long afterwards, but uh, the, the split was apparently amicable. They um, When they did split up, uh, they, they remained friends. They actually did work uh, together on a couple more projects, but not to, not as archers, not as not in the same kind of collaborative sense where they were kind of co-producing 
and, and in some cases kind of co-directing. Um, you know, Pressburger's contribution didn't end at the typewriter. So, um, but this story of, uh, of, of a romantic or maybe not so romantic triangle between a, uh, a producer, you know, Anton Walbrook's uh, kind of driven ballet producer, uh, impresario, and Moira Shearer's uh, gifted uh, ballerina, and also Marius Goring as the young, hot-blooded composer who uh, falls in love with the ballerina. And, and, uh, and in the middle of it is this crazy, impressionistic, surrealistic ballet sequence, which is unlike anything you've ever seen. It's, it's, it's all done in music and dance and and using the techniques of the time uh, to their utmost, you know, double exposures and mats and miniatures and uh, and just use of color and lighting, like every cinematic trick in the book is put to uh, is brought to bear on the on the ballet sequence, and it is quite stunning. Like you could even just go watch that sequence and and uh, just come away, you know, just completely blown away. But of course, there's also this story wrapped around it, and and of course, there's there's the bleed through between the ballet itself and the romantic and professional lives of its main characters. And it, it's a pretty astonishing film. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not hard to see why Scorsese is so obsessed with it. Yeah, it is a remarkable film. It was my first time seeing it. And uh, it I could see the influence on Baz Luhrmann. I could see the influence on, uh, uh, you know, Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. I could see the influence on any grand, even like cabaret, like any grand behind-the-scenes show business uh, movie. Uh, oh, all that jazz, you know, like it, it has, it's, it's like the first of that genre and it is remarkable to see the color, the characters, it starts quite light and quite, uh, wonderful. You know, it's like the kids from fame are, you know, they're all just like these, these super talented, super ambitious students of art who all want to live their lives in art but the, there's a price to pay and that's pretty much the lesson of yeah, the film. Yeah, it starts out kind of like a standard backstage musical drama basically. It's almost yeah. kind of like 42nd Street, you know, you're going to go out there a ballerina and come back a star kind of thing, you know, it's, 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 it starts off as like the old Hollywood story but then takes this super dark turn. It's yeah. just, you know, and it it's there, there's aspects of this film that seem daring for their time uh, and, and still kind of shocking now. And then, and then, and that's the thread that runs through these films. I mean, you know, Powell and Pressburger in England seem to have gotten a free hand. It seems like they were able to make their films the way they wanted to make them without a whole lot of interference from the front office. And that, and that's another reason why these films are so remarkable because it, they, they don't feel like they've been meddled with by committees and, and, uh, and, you know, movie moguls who think they know better than, and sometimes movie moguls do know better than the filmmakers, but in some cases they don't. And in England, apparently they were wise enough to let them just make the films they, the way they wanted to make them. They were successful enough, that, you know, they made back their money and they figured they wouldn't mess with success. And so these films exist as these documents, you know, because sometimes you see a classic film and then you think about what could have been if it hadn't been like Magnificent Ambersons or, you know, some of the Orson Welles films that got tampered with. In this case, these films don't feel like they were tampered with to any great degree. Um, and, uh, and it's so rare in cinema, you know, even in great classic foreign or art cinema for the filmmaker to be able to make the film exactly the way they want to make it. But, the, you know, when you watch something like The Red Shoes, you get the feeling that that's exactly what happened, that these yeah. guys made the films the way they wanted to make them and put them out there. You know, even though some of them got, you know, other distributors meddled with them, but that's beyond their control. But yeah, what yeah. exists now are the, these fairly pure visions. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now we have one more uh, of the Paolo Pressburger uh, canon to discuss. And also I think we want to talk a little bit about other films that we really love on the Criterion channel yeah. and collection. 
Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And we're talking about the Criterion Channel, which recently debuted in the last uh, month or so on uh, streaming services. I'm watching it on my Roku, but I guess you can get it on uh, any number. You can watch it through a laptop or uh, an Apple TV or Chromecast or whatever. Whatever, uh, there's so many device, Android, whatever, your phone, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd recommend the phone. No, I wouldn't yeah. either. This is, that's <laughs> definitely not the way to watch these films. But um, we, we decided to hone in for this show anyway. We will probably return to this because there's so many fascinating uh, programs and collections that are being assembled for this uh, particular streaming service. It's like Netflix, if Netflix was good. you know. <laughs> or Well, I, I watch a lot of Netflix too, but... but uh, you know, if they cared let, about the history of cinema. If they cared about the history of cinema and, and maybe a little bit more about foreign and, uh, and independent cinema. But um, uh, we're, we're honing in on Powell and Pressburger for a couple of different reasons. One, because I dearly love these films and because Karsten has been wanting to watch so many of these films or catch up with the nooks and crannies of the collection that he hasn't. And, because it's a, and they made a lot of movies. They were a very prolific team. Uh, Emmerich uh, Pressburger and Michael Powell. The, um, uh, Emmerich, the writer producer and Powell, the writer director. Uh, and, uh, one of the films that's available is, uh, black Narcissus, which came out in, uh, let's see. 1947. 19- I have here. Yes. 1947. We actually got ahead of it. We talked about the red shoes in the last segment. Black Narcissus came out, uh, a year before that and, uh, is uh, just as remarkable as the red shoes, uh, in so many ways. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the most heated kind of erotic and disturbing films of its time. There's no way that this film could have got made in Hollywood. That's for sure. And it's amazing. It got made in England, even, um, as we, uh, follow the lives of a group of nuns in a remote Himalayan, um, well, it's, let's say Seraglio or, uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a it's, it's basically a, a harem for a, an ancient Indian prince. So. Yes, and it's been repurposed as a school slash hospital for a group of nuns, and uh, they they are assigned, led by Sister Cloda, played by Deborah Carr again, and uh, they have variety. Each of them has a has a uh, personal issue that they're sort of struggling with, but they also have to interact with the. Uh, uh, northern Indian uh, village and community there uh, near Darjeeling. Uh, what's fascinating about the film, of course, they never went to India. They never went to shoot on location. It's all done in studio and I guess on British locations. And uh, the the way they, the efforts to which, I mean, I don't think they're entirely successful, but the efforts to which they try to recreate a location in the Himalayas is really something with the constant breeze that comes even inside. All their robes and habits are all moving all the time because the wind, the breeze comes through all the time. And and it, it tends to bring this this sense of like restlessness, which of course... Is, is 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 you know the characters the the core of the film is a uh, one of the nuns um, played by um, let's see what's her name Kathleen Byron plays Sister Ruth uh, seethes with jealousy over the uh, a Mister Dean a, a British uh, man who lives in the community and the fact that he spends time with Sister Clote. Uh, Cloda, and uh, and eventually she decides to you know shirk her values and and leave leave the 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 cloth and uh, and that whole sort of trip for her is couched in these sort of what I would consider horror movie tropes like the visuals and oh the, my gosh the yes. way they 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 you know depict her going insane is really something to see like I I had huge. Huge! I really enjoyed the 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 production values around this. 
at the same time, of all the films we watched, I would say this one has the most problematic issues around <laughs> yes. the politics of it, the whole hysteria of women thing, which is pretty tiresome. Uh, I'm having this conversation a lot these days about Game of Thrones, uh, and this is, you know, this is part of that whole um, path of of showing women going insane over love or jealousy. Um, and then there's also the fact that uh, Gene Simmons plays a local young woman in full blackface. That's a little hard to uh, to swallow. Well, brownface. Let's be fair. Yes. Yeah. But it's, it's <laughs> but really, yes, yeah. you're right. It's it's it's, it's yeah, it, I mean, but that that kind of casting was so common in those days. But it's it's hard to watch it now. Of course, uh, you kind of wish that uh, there had been an, an East Indian actress that they could have used. Uh, and but uh, that's you know we could spend a whole show on inappropriate casting. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's you know it, it's a rare misstep in 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 this catalog. But uh, and her treatment in the film is also fairly uh, you know fairly hard to take. Uh, when you get into when she's being beaten by the the old crazy woman who uh-huh. who runs the who comes with the place as as it as it were, but uh, but the film's intensity and and the raw power of the performances I think is what keeps it watchable and keeps sure. it, keeps it a classic. And and again, like I I find it, the mats and and the way they portray this place in the Himalayas with the sets and and and. Uh, and the cinema trickery, uh, I think, is it's pretty effective for the most part. I mean, when you're watching it in high def, you can definitely see where things line up and that sort of thing. But, but uh, you know, it's 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 a beautiful film to look at, and uh, and you know, and it's also uh, relatively brief <laughs> for a Powell and Pressburger movie. Yeah, less than two hours. It, it, I think it's like an hour and forty minutes. So yeah. it's um it's a little more compact and streamlined than some of the other films, and. Uh, and, and uh, you know Deborah Carr is fantastic as, she as is. the nun with a past, <laughs> who <who's, who's laughs> has to kind of uh, kind of try and she's trying to put it behind her. Obviously, you know you don't become a nun and move to the Himalayas if you don't have some some past issues, I guess. Uh, but of course, that's what uh, you know basically becomes the issue with all these women who are in this remote place that has not ghosts per se, but there's certainly you know they're they're basically in, in a you know, living in a former harem and uh, there's a certain atmosphere that just seems to seep out of the walls and, and get into their, their minds. And it's, uh, you know, it's definitely palpable throughout the film and I definitely recommend it. Yeah. Now, before we sign off, we wanted to give a shout out to some of our other favorite Criterion films. These are films that are available on DVD or Blu-ray, or sometimes they're even available on the streaming service. And I remember I we we're going to say on LaserDisc. <laughs> well, that too. As I have some real ha- favorites on LaserDisc. You probably do. I don't have a LaserDisc player. I know you still do. Uh, I wanted to say that the three-disc Brazil collection is probably the first one I purchased from Criterion. And it includes the Love Conquers All version of the film, oh. which was edited by the studio, the one that Gilliam hated. So, you know, full credit to the filmmaker for being up for that, that the fir- the version of the film that he hated is still there for people to see. And I think he, he probably said yes to that because he realized every one would be like, well, why did they do that? Um, so there's that one. I wanted to say also The Battle of Algiers, which was a film I knew nothing about before I watched it on Criterion. It is amazing. Uh, the Before Trilogy, all available now on uh, Criterion. Hopefully there'll be a fourth before movie from Richard Linklater, and oh, it might add add to I'd, that. I'd say it's a given. That. Let's let's hope so in 2022. Um, the Three Colors Trilogy by Kir- Christoph Kozlowski is 
also unbelievable. Uh, we should do a, a Kozlowski show sometime. Uh, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, Vim Vender's Paris, Texas, and American Friend. These are all films. Actually, if you visit the Lens Me Your Ears uh, Twitter uh, account, I, I actually posted a photo from my small but proud Criterion collection at home, <laughs> and you can see the, all the ones I've got there. It's, it's really, they're all wonderful films, and uh, you know, full marks to Criterion people for, for you know, knowing which ones and, and doing such a good job to preserve them. Yeah, I, geez, trying to pick a favorite would be hard. It's, uh, you know, I think back when I mentioned Laserdisc, I've got the original triple Laserdiscs of Hard Boiled and The Killer from John Woo. In fact, my my copy, I actually got one of them autographed by Chow Gun Fat, if you can believe it. Wow, at, amazing. Uh, I met him at the Toronto Film Fest and I just bought it at Bay, uh, Bay Street Video. Um, also, uh, and, and, and those films really, does, they need to be brought back for a proper presentation because what's available on those films is really not acceptable at the moment. Uh, and they're classics of their genre. But of course, the, the Hong Kong, you know, action film industry, you know, was never great on archival uh, preservation or anything like that. In fact, uh, Criterion just released uh, Jackie Chan's Police Story 1 and 2 as a double feature set. And uh, I cannot wait to get my hands on that. And I hope that's the start of a long line of, uh, of uh, exploration of that whole movie scene because those films are still pretty fantastic today. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Um, uh, and and there, there's a lot of things like the works of, of the Japanese director Ozu that I'm just, you know, I, I've only experienced a couple of the films here and there, and I'm really looking forward to to finally watching things like Tokyo Story and a number of the films in his catalog. Um, I was looking at the Criterion Channel itself. There are things like um, there's right one of the latest things they just added: cinematography by uh, Kazuo Miyagawa, a great uh, Japanese cameraman. He worked on Rashomon, Sancho the Bailiff, uh, Uzo's uh, Ozu's Floating Weeds, Zatoichi and the Chest of Gold. So he worked on these uh, amazing pieces of art and also samurai films. I think he worked on one of those baby cart, uh, lone wolf and cub kind of movies. Um, there's a set on George Cukor's Women, uh, things like What Price Hollywood, the film that led to the Star is Born uh, series of uh, remakes, uh, Dinner at Eight, uh, Gaslight. There's a set of films of Columbia noir films, which is astonishing. Some of them are you know the ultimate classics of the genre like the big heat but then there's minor films like um drive a crooked road with mickey rooney as kind of an introverted mechanic who gets involved in a heist and bad things happen of course because it's a film noir there's um female filmmakers chantal ackerman agnes varda and kelly reichardt uh, the sets of their films on there and uh you know i mean i mean these women make amazing films and then you never get a chance to see them so criterion's trying to Restore the balance there. And, of course, uh, the films of Igmar Bergman and Liv Ullman, one of his uh, greatest collaborators, you know, they're all classics and they're all worth seeing. So, you know, and I can't wait to dive into more of these uh, collections of films. And that wraps up our look at the Criterion Collection and the new streaming Criterion channel, especially the films of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger here on Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, we've kind of gone over our time, so we're going to make it quick. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm Karsten Knox, and I'm also on Twitter, and you can find me, it's a title of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And of course, you can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And of course, thanks as always to the folks at CKDU for the use of their studio and airing us every other Tuesday. Tuesday at 5.30 p.m., and the folks at Village Soundcast Network for making it all sound so great when they put it all together. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. 
All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.